When this kind of fire starts, it is very hard to put out. The tender boughs of innocence burn first, and the wind rises, and then all goodness is in jeopardy. Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode is on Laura's inner circle. We're going to talk about her relationship to Donna, to James, to Bobby, the Palmer family, and then her murder. So there's a lot to dig into here, and let's just jump right into it. For the relationship to Donna, it's been actually 13 entries since the last appearance of this storyline in any significant way. Donna mentioned her, I don't. I was going to say once or twice, but really only once, I think, in the later part of the series where she's like, and it's more in terms of James. Like, you won't have to think about Maddie or Laura or Evelyn. And, you know, that's that's all that comes up at that point. So Donna's really sort of moved on in story terms from her friendship with Laura. Uh, the last time it came up, it wasn't even Donna bringing it up. It was uh, her mother, Eileen, or no, I think it was Sarah saying at Leland's Wake that Donna and Laura had made a vow that if one of them was to die, and then we like cut to Donna talking to Big Ed, and it's all about James. Like there's no, there's no focus on Laura at all. So they really pulled Donna away from that story purpose, which was so defining to her early in the series. And now here she is again, played by a different actress, but totally enveloped in Laura's world and defined by her relationship to Laura. And Laura, again, Donna to her, it's like a part of herself that is lost that has fallen, that she doesn't want, uh, in this case, to get corrupted, but it's like a separate part. It's like, well, I don't want the not corrupted part of myself to get corrupted, but of course, in myself, it already has been. So I have to protect this other friend separate from me. So we start off right away with that one year later in Twin Peaks, where it's the beginning of the Laura section, uh, the sign, the mountains in the background, and uh, Donna is the first person we see with Laura. She's walking to school past the Hayward house, calls to her, hey, Donna. It's like Laura's first line in the film. Donna comes out. Right away, this location feels different. Again, you know, the shot of the mountains and the sign is familiar, although it's lit much differently. Like this is a summer, a warm summer vision of what is usually cool and gray and wintry in the series, that, that sign shot that we see at the beginning of Twin Peaks. And the location where they're walking to school feels different as well. It's much more normal. It feels very suburban, which both has a sort of, um, I don't want to use the word deflating effect, but it has like a, you know, it kind of takes some of the quirkiness and charm of Twin Peaks as this woodsy little small town from another era out. And it's like, no, it's a normal suburban town, you know, like just like anywhere else. And it also adds a flavor of, subtle dread maybe because it reminds us if we've seen like slasher films of all these teen horror films as Grail Marcus calls it like a teen jeopardy flick where uh, everything is normal until it's not and those shots in Halloween where they're walking through the neighborhood again leafy suburban sidewalks and the the shape as he's known Michael Myers just appears in the distance uh terrorizing them like these shots in uh in, in Twin Peaks, of, of Laura walking to school, remind me so much of Halloween. The John Carpenter film, obviously. So, Laura and Donna go to school. They have the banter with Mike and Bobby, and then Laura leaves her in the hallway. This is when she goes to snort coke. And again, it's right there. We're seeing, okay, Donna is 
present with Lara, but she doesn't. She's not really totally part of her world. Uh, I mentioned that the students in the script are like bowing down to them as they walk past, like almost like a cartoon vision. I picture something like like Betty Boop walking by and like Bimbo and the the clown like bowing down or something before her. That's <laughs> kind of ridiculous. That that type of imagery, and I think in general the screenplay retains a much more wacky flavor than is present in the film other than Deer Meadow. Deer Meadow keeps some of that wackiness, but um, in the in the film in general, uh, it goes away very much in the second half. You get sneak peeks of it now and then, like maybe the stuttering Moe's Motors guy is like something that could be in Wild at Heart as like a wacky character flourish, but it's so sidelined you barely notice it. And a much more realistic texture uh, kind of takes hold in a way. And that, too, is a callback to the pilot because of the pilot, in a different way, I think the pilot has a different sort of tone and style aesthetic to it, but uh, it also is grounded in a more realistic, naturalistic texture than um, the much of the series is. So in that sense as well, even though in a different way, the film and pilot are connected. We have the scene of Laura and Donna um, well, I should mention Donna's present for the scene with Bobby and doesn't play an active role in it, but she kind of watches her friend walk all over the boyfriend, basically. And then they're talking about how Laura goes out at night. Is she going to go out with Bobby? She should stick with James and all of that. I love the overhead shot in the sequence where they're in the Hayward house. They're in the living room, lying on their backs on the couch, staring at the ceiling. There's a fireplace going. One of the few instances of fire actually in the film, but it's very contained the long shadows of the late afternoon just running along the carpet. Everything is very spacious, quiet, relaxing. There's like a time to meditate. And I think this is where, I've heard other people say this as well. I think this is for me maybe on the first viewing as well, like where you click into the film. Like it's been throwing so many different things at you up to this point. And now you finally have a moment to kind of breathe in and be like, like settle into the groove. There's a great close-up reaction of Laura after Donna says she's a goon. And Laura is just kind of smiling a little to herself, but looking like maybe a little sad too. And it's the first moment of reflection that we've really gotten from her. Uh, we've gotten her interacting, Laura interacting with other people, and maybe her focus as she hides something like the fact that she's doing coke. But this is perhaps the first privileged glimpse into Lara's interiority in a way that encourages us to identify rather than just observe as an audience. And uh, it's just a subtle little moment, but the way this scene is cut, this, this is just, it's, this is one of those eye of the duck scenes, like Lynch calls it the kind of the center that pulls everything into focus. And uh, even though it's a very subtle, quiet scene, and then of course it leads to that angel speech. It's funny too, again, to contrast with the secret diary by Jennifer Lynch According to that, Donna and Laura aren't really even close friends anymore. Um, they don't see that much of each other, and they're, they've drifted apart. And that's not the case in the film, really, although emotionally there is certainly a great distance between them. The next time we see Laura and Donna together, Laura is at her doorstep. She's crying. She's totally traumatized. It's after she's seen Leland come out of the house and she's like, Donna, Donna, are you, are you my best friend? And she says, of course, of course. And she comforts her. And she's just, she needs someone so much at that point. Um, just an intense moment. 
um, that that shot of the door opening and finding her there weeping. And um, without spoiling anything, I guess I'll say we are going to see that specific shot again in a different context later in Twin Peaks. I'll just leave it at that for those who have not yet seen The Missing Pieces or uh, Season 3. Donna is, uh, she shows up at Laura's house a couple days later and kind of annoys her before Laura's going out for the night. Like, Laura's just not in the mood for this kind of schoolgirl banter that Donna has going, and she leaves without her, but Donna follows her to the roadhouse and comes in and sees Laura crying there. And it's it's interesting how in the movie so often we are, we're with Laura, we're also with other characters sometimes as they see her and try to make sense of her. In this moment, we're kind of with Donna, but I would say we're more with Laura. Um, we're with both of them, at, I think, back and forth and kind of almost at once as well. Like, we're able to kind of empathize with both characters and see their stances in this situation. It's just a wonderfully directed little scene in the roadhouse there. And then Donna tries to show off, comes up. Uh, not even show off, just really keep up. Like, come on, let's split. Okay, fine. You're going to stay? I'm going to stay. I'm going to drink. I'm going to kiss this guy. What are you going to do? You're going to tell me not to come? So she says, fine, Donna, let's go. Or let's boogie or whatever she says. And then boom, they're right at the party land. And Donna is so out of her element there throughout this entire sequence. And there's the moment where she's drugged. Like, I'm pretty sure she doesn't even know what's going on but Laura clearly does. Like she looks at Buck and she kind of nods and Buck holds the beer to the side where it can't quite be seen. Like, I don't think he's hiding it from, uh, you know, the security guard or something. If there even is one here, it, clearly nobody would care. And he's actually drugging Donna. And, uh, then she starts to lose her inhibitions. She's woozy. She's dancing with the different people. And there's a moment there where she looks over as Buck strips Laura down, pulls pulls her dress off, and she's just, her eyes widen and she backs off in horror. It's like she's seeing something that in her, someone she's closer to than almost anyone else in the world or thought she was, and she's just seeing something that she'd never expected to see or like, it, it, it's, it's a very young Goodman Brown moment. Um, again, I mean, this is something that I don't think I would need to pull in Grail Marcus because this is one of my favorite short stories. I'm just so fascinated by the dynamic in that. It's the Nathaniel Hawthorne story about a young Puritan who goes into the woods to meet with the devil and he's all nervous, like, oh my God, I hope the community doesn't find out, but I feel this urge. I must do this. And he gets there and he finds out, no, the whole community is already there. Like they're already in on this. Like you're the one who's behind and even his wife is there. And uh, I'll I'll link this below. It's online all over the place. You can read this if you haven't already. It's like a school. It's it's, it's a story often read in school, although I I don't think I ever read it until college. But um, it, it's just one of the all time great short stories and really insightful into the American psyche in general. I think, and uh, so in this moment, Donna is very much a young Goodman Brown uh, character seeing being exposed to the fact that like she is way behind where where she thought she was in the world and what she understood about the people around her. And as I mentioned, Graham Marcus does use Gail Goodman Brown as a touchstone quite frequently in the shape of things to come. And particularly with the twin peaks and the Laura story. And she also, as, as she totally is overcome by the drug, she picks up Laura's sweater off the floor and uh, ties it around her waist and, uh, or, or not even her sweater, her little like jacket that she wears with the, with the 
the piece with the dress and uh, ties it around her waist. And later when she is, uh, when, when Tim, I keep forgetting his name, the other guy is like on top of her and it seems like they're going to have sex and she's like totally non, you know, um, totally out of it. And, and Laura comes and, and grabs her. And the thing she says to her is, don't wear my stuff. Don't ever wear my stuff. Cause she sees that she had the shirt with her. That's where it goes. And it's like, I don't want you corrupted by me. She tells her the next morning when Donna's trying to remember what happened on the couch, she's like, did you, was I wearing something? Just, did you pull me out of there? It's like, and Laura says, I don't want you to be like me. And so this is her fixation with Donna, even though she's sort of throws her overboard at certain points, she ultimately comes to her rescue. And it's like, listen, like, I'm on this path. You don't have to be. And Donna asks her, it's one of the last lines they share, says, why, why are you like, like, why, why do you do these things? Why does this like this? And Laura looks like she doesn't quite know how to answer. And that's the moment Lynch chooses to have Leland enter into the Hayward house very significantly. So then Donna is left behind and that's it. That's what we're left with, with Donna, this unsatisfying unknowing that will then carry on into the series and drive all of her action in the series. It's a very compelling setup in a way for who Donna will be, but also just a kind of quiet moment of incompletion that could sustain and live on its own if all we had was the Lara story. We only see Donna one more time. It's in the background when Lara is crying in school and Donna doesn't even seem to notice. So they do share the screen again, but they don't like interact after this point in the film. And then, again, moving backwards into the elements as they're introduced in the film, we have a relationship, Lars' relationship to James. It's been seven entries since the last appearance of that. Uh, and that would be when Donna, as I said, mentions to James, like, you need to go away. You need to get away from all these things haunting you, like Laura. And uh, throughout the series, even with the strange Evelyn Marsh stuff that in some ways is the furthest afield we travel from Twin Peaks, uh, Laura is a presence in James's life. She's always uh, driving what he does and, and, and everything. And as with Donna, it's like these are characters who, while Laura was alive, they tried to get close. They were, at times, not always like maybe as present as they could be. When they did try to be, she would push them away. They couldn't find the right sort of way to get into her confidences. And it just kills them afterwards. I mean... Um, they, they're just so haunted by this fact, this inability for their, for their entire duration on the show. So we first see Laura running into him at school, or he kind of runs into her, he grabs her arm and says, hey, Laura. And she, they stare sort of moonily into each other's eyes. There's some sort of real love uh, there, um, <laughs> even though she has a lot of contempt for him as well, as people have laughed, fans who are not big fans of James. They like the moment on the show when she says, James is nice, but he's so dumb. <laughs> you know, there's there's that element, but she does care about him. And she mentions him, actually. This isn't something I mention in the scenes because he's not in it directly. But when she's with Harold, she says, James, she says his name, and then she's worried. And that's when she wants to make Harold keep the diary. So she's obviously concerned about James and cares about him, even as he kind of drives her nuts at times. The next sequence between them is we see a quick shot of her emerging from like a gym locker room or something in a towel. He's waiting outside for her to see her. Just an idea of their secret, the secrecy of their relationship. And we cut away to another scene, come back and they're talking and making out 
uh, near this room. So she's telling him she's long gone, quit, quit holding on. And he's saying, what are you talking about? This is when we get the line, the, the one of the laugh lines when you see it with a live audience where he says, she says, I'm long gone like a turkey in the corn. And he says, you're not a turkey. A turkey is one of the dumbest animals. And she responds, gobble, 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 which is, it's played so straight. And she actually plays it really well. But it is such a ridiculously goofy conceit in the script by Lynch and Engels that like every time I've seen it, it's like each line gets escalating laughter. Um, because of that. But, you know, again, it's that one of those moments where he makes something poignant and ridiculous at once, I think. there There is something, uh, you know, beneath the absurdity of the of the dialogue that, that kind of captures this idea of, like, not just that somebody is is disappearing, and but that they're, they're like an animal to the slaughter in a way. There's that element to it as well. And, uh, Something else that occurs to me in this, I'm not sure why it occurred to me with this scene. I think, I guess, because this is like the, you know, they're, they're setting up the idea that something is getting started here, even before she finds the missing diary pages. It's like, I'm long gone. Like, this is too late. Like, we're on a, I'm, I'm on my last stretch here, kind of. It's this idea of the last seven days, the last week, or the last eight days, as it actually unfolds. It's a conceit that really belongs to the film. In the diary, I think her last day is the one that's a big deal. Like, yes, she's been spiraling, spiraling for a long time, but it seems like everything that happens happens in the last day or two before she dies. And the film, they make it a whole week so that they can have this kind of structuring conceit. And uh, that that's something that I think they bring to the film, the idea of like the last seven days of Laura Palmer is what's crucial. And there's something, again... Um, this is an element, I'm trying to think if this is something I've even, you know, as, as I've been preparing this podcast, is this something that's come up already or is this something I'm going to bring up? I believe it's something that comes later down the line as I'm talking about this, but this idea, this sort of Christian conceit where it's like a passion play. I think actually one of the um, people on Usenet mentioned that in the comments that I read earlier. And there is that idea here. It's like the last week of Laura. I mean, what is... What does that call to mind? I think for anyone, if you're like Catholic or whatever, the sort of the week, the last week of uh, Lent with a Palm Sunday, and then that leads in through like Holy Thursday, Good Friday, and so forth. Uh, there's that idea of like the last week being this crucial crucible that you pass through. Lauren Donna discuss James later on in the uh, later scene. As we've discussed, and clearly Donna likes him in that moment, you can see, and Laura kind of smiles a little to herself. It's like she's kind of hovering above both of them at this point. Laura talks to James uh, much later in the film outside of her house. Uh, I should mention, actually, though, he does come up before that because uh, in between those two scenes, which seems like a long stretch for James to be absent, but he comes up because of the half-heart necklace she's wearing. This is what Leland sees and starts to ask her about, oh, who is this? Do you have a Bobby didn't give you this? Where did this come from? Just this jealous, domineering father. And it's the connection with James that spurs that. So again, there's these elements that come together coalescing towards the the, the final night, the final day. And one of them is this, this presence of James as like a secret boyfriend that he doesn't know about. And so we, when we do get that scene of James showing up at the house, pulling up in front and uh, her coming down to talk to him and 
not lingering very long. And he's like, you're on drugs again. Why won't you come see me? You're supposed to see me last night. And her kind of uh, keeping her distance. And this is when Leland shows up on the steps above. And there's certainly significance there. So he's already shown he's jealous of this mysterious stranger. And uh, that in that moment, it's like maybe... You know, I'm sure there's some regularity to when he abuses Laura, but it certainly seems significant, especially as they repositioned the scene so that this would be that morning, that this is the night where he comes into her room and, and she finally finds out who he is. There's uh, later on Laura talking to James on the phone the night she's going to die. He calls up, well, she's got these other plans. She's going out to the cabin and then she agrees to see him and it's like she's making a mistake. And she sneaks out, runs across the yard and jumps on his motorcycle and like speeds away. And you get that shot of Leland looking out again, this idea that her connection to James, her relationship to James is a big part of the fuel of the fire that's burning in him right now. When they go into the woods together and talk, we get a real unfolding of all the things he described to Donna. And it's amazing how well it works. Um, You know, the, We've we've heard most of the things she's going to say to him already through Donna. I think this is one of those moments. There aren't many in the film, despite everything people said about how, like, oh, we've already heard all this. We've seen all this. It's basically just a recap episode. <laughs> I think people have actually described Firewalk with me that way. It's like, what? That's all you got from this? Really? But um, this is a moment where it does actually come close to being that. And yet it's so brilliant and powerful just because of Cheryl Lee's performance. I mean, this... God, there's so many contenders. This might be the finest, uh, her finest piece of acting in the film. Just her, uh, her whole, it's almost like a one-sided dialogue because the character can't like receive or totally comprehend what she's saying. It's more for herself, but she has him to kind of bounce off of the faces she makes, the expressions, the many turns she takes throughout this scene, the transformations. It's just so incredible, this this entire sequence. And again, in this sequence, she tells James, she says something as she's like, oh no, like he'll find you. We've got to go. We've got to go. Like she's always trying to protect him from being pulled into her world like Donna. The, the two characters, they're kind of innocents and she doesn't want them corrupted. And so she's cruel to them. She's sometimes even like puts them in harm's way, but she ultimately wants to take them out and save them even if it means sort of sacrificing herself for that purpose. So she abandons him at the traffic light at Sparkwood in 21. And I think that's part of why I think it's all complex. Like there's so much wrapped into us. There's also just her, her urges, her drives, pulling her into the woods away from, you know, towards um, this, this kind of oblivion, this kind of escape. Um, but there is a protective impulse there too. And I love the fact that her theme plays in full on the soundtrack, the way it would on the series, like when she's first unwrapped and as it does throughout that episode and later episodes. And it made me realize this time as I heard it, I think this is the first time it plays out in the film. I think we might hear like a few notes of it during their conversation in the woods. Uh, Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's like, playing throughout that whole scene but uh, the 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 song the musical track i remember from that sequence in the woods of her and james right before this is more uh, half heart which is unique to this film it's sort of a beautiful little number that's sort of like it seems like it should be should be should be a sort of schmaltzy but uh, i find it very uh 
kind of beautiful the the way it works in this, especially in this context. But I don't think we hear a lot of the Laura Palmer theme until she hops off the bike. And that made me realize, in a way, this is not actually Laura Palmer's theme, this music. It's the theme of the people around Laura Palmer. It's the theme of the town's longing, the melancholy, the grief-stricken memory of her, which is being implanted in James in this very moment. Uh, It's not her. It's not her interior song. Like, this is not... This is the Laura as the town knew or glimpsed her. That's what this music means. And there's something very poignant about that. It's like we're we're meeting Laura Palmer in this film and finding out Laura Palmer's theme isn't even the key to Laura, really. And even the way that Lynch would describe this to Angelo Badalamenti when they were composing it, it's all from the point of view of someone seeing Laura. It's like, now you see her. She comes through the woods. She's sad. She's beautiful. She's walking towards you. And now she's walking away. And, you know, Angelo Badalamenti has recited this. I'll certainly link this in the show notes. Um, recited this memory of, of Lynch instructing him, get, get, putting him in the emotional space to write uh, as they're talking about it, like he was composing it on the piano, on the keyboard. Uh, the Laura Palmer theme. And it's just interesting to think of it in that light of what it really, what it really signifies. And then another storyline established even earlier than James in the pilot is Laura's relationship to Bobby. Uh, That goes back to when Sarah is calling around to the Briggses and trying to find out where Laura went. And it's been eight entries since the last appearance of that in a very flippant offhand way where Bobby is sitting in the uh, sheriff's station with his arm around Shelly going, I've been with Shelly for a while, since before Laura died, and that's it. It's just like by that point, that's all Laura seems to mean to him and his story. But earlier in the show, it means so much more. and You know that it, it carries with him through the years uh, as well after this. So it begins in this film when, uh, first of all, he, he calls to her from the car, standing there with Mike, saying, hey, come to school with us, and she kind of brushes him off. So it's like, right from the beginning, I think the dynamic with Bobby, each each character that she interacts with has their own kind of dynamic. And with Bobby, he's kind of a fallen character to her in a way, I think. she's she's a bit He's a bit corrupted like she is. Um, sort of like, he's like the male Renette in a way. You know, if Bobby is to James as Renette is to Donna. Um and and so she disrespects him quite a bit. Not to cheat, you know, she disrespects James too. She literally sticks her middle finger up in his face, says, How about this, James? You know, that type of thing. But it's it's like she she does also want him and she doesn't really want Bobby anymore. That that relationship's really over. And there's a sadness to that. And so we then see Bobby kissing Laura through the partition, like I mean, kissing the glass that her portrait is behind. Uh, another example of how nobody can really reach her, but also contrasting him with the very next shot of her with James, who she actually is exposing a little more of himself, of herself to. Um, but there's irony in that as well, him kissing the portrait. It's like, well, Bobby, of all people, knows that she's not the homecoming queen image. Like, he, better than almost anybody else, has that insight, um, at least beyond, like, the outright criminals like Leo or or Jacques and, or those people. Um, so there's a lot going on there. And it's also, uh, I I guess this would be the spot to mention something that there's an interesting observation Cameron Cloutier made, the obnoxious and anonymous, uh, commentator on YouTube says, you know, the, the portraits are kind of reversed. So like in the, 
pilot or in the show, you have one um, prom or homecoming queen picture of Laura at the school and another slightly different one, different pose, a little more off the cuff in the home. If you look, they're like two different portraits. In the film, they're also different, but they seem to be flipped. You seem to see the school one in the home and the home one in the school. So the one that's behind glass in the partition looks like the one that was in the house on the show. Sort of complicated to explain. Also, I think as I've looked at it closely as other people have sort of um, observed to me, I think that actually there's probably more than just two that are flipped. I think they had a whole selection of them and they would sort of pull different ones. I don't know if there's a reason behind it, but I like the idea that it is kind of an alternate flipped view of of the world and of Laura and how we're seeing things in Twin Peaks. So whether or not it's like a straight up reversal, flip the switch, or it's more just like pulling different props every time we see it, it's a slightly different Laura. It, it has interesting resonances. And also, um, you know, this shot reminds us of the pilot where we see her picture behind glass. It's like the first time we've seen Laura other than her being dead this whole time. We've heard, seen the people reacting, crying as she's dying, as they find out she's dead. And that whole sequence ends with the like closing in with the Laura Palmer's theme playing on her portrait there. And it struck me watching this, that the fire walk with me, Laura intro is structured kind of like that first part of the pilot, but backwards. It's slowly bringing us closer to Laura rather than watching the ripples spread out from her death. So it's kind of the similar movement, but in the opposite direction to this whole opening passage from like her walking to school to uh, the leaving Bobby or leaving Donna or whatever, going back to her house and finding the missing pages. And then in the pilot, everything from like them finding her corpse, calling the cops to the seeing the homecoming portrait. It's like interesting phenomenon there interiority versus the exteriority of the two works we then have a scene where laura is arguing with bobby on the schoolyard he's yelling at her like why didn't you show up where were you You were supposed to meet me here and she just kind of tells him off and he does a little power move with her but then she does the ultimate power move which is smiling at him oh come on bobby come on and getting him to crack and smile back i love you babe and he walks off backwards this is when the uh rap song by angelo battlementi that is him singing quote-unquote on the soundtrack uh, plays out and Bobby's dancing backwards and it plays out uh, again later when Laura is in the room with the diary it's called the real indication by the thought gang which is basically just like Lynch and Battlementi and some of the musicians in the studio and uh, this is funny you know talking uh, to go off on a tangent here talking about how Firewalk with me is able to contain all these different worlds even as it's a very focused work in some ways but has all these strange spokes that kind of stick out in odd directions there's like an urban rap video of like you know sewers and grates and stuff in in LA I think it was shot uh it might even I mean it, but it's a very classically like urban location Angelo's walking down the street this like 50 year old Italian man in like a t-shirt and jeans and singing the the lyrics to real indication in black and white as the camera zooms in and bobs and weaves around him. And this is like a music video for Fire Walk With Me, essentially. It's just like the the Lynch verse is so many strange little facets to it. So anyways, as this song is playing, you see Bobby dancing backwards, kind of chugging along and swaying. And all the other kids start to dance too, like they're imitating him. It's a slightly subtle, surreal moment 
uh, in this film, which again is in many ways more sort of naturalistic and grounded than a lot of Twin Peaks, but it has flourishes like this. And there's also a little bit of a weird plot mechanic going on here where you could conclude, oh, this one day, like the kids saw Bobby dancing around. And ever since then, it's like they they try to imitate him. And that's why the ducktail kid dances backwards in the pilot. So the greatest mystery of the pilot has been answered. I'm talking about the kid who like slams his locker shut in that in the shot where everyone else has left the frame and then he like boogies backwards down the hallway <laughs> like doing a little shuffle pretty funny i never noticed the like i i think um in the show bobby would like tie his flannel shirt around his waist um, but you really notice it here and it feels so very early 90s in a way that the show doesn't always sometimes it feels more like late 80s like very, very early 90s, like pre-grunge early 90s. This feels more like grunge era, although it was shot a few months before Nevermind came out, the Nirvana album. Uh, but it is in the Seattle area where Nirvana was already well-known and the grunge scene was established. So to the extent this particular look, like big, long flannel shirts, uh, was was kind of uh, a grunge thing and not just, a, you know, a, a fashion thing of the time as well, um, it... it it, it echoes that moment nicely, let's just say, that, that has already evolved between the beginning of Twin Peaks and now. During the talk between Donna and Laura in the living room, Donna is making fun of Bobby. She says, uh, oh, he she calls him, I think I said earlier that she calls Laura a goon, but she calls Bobby a goon, I think. And uh, it's almost a little like guilt on Laura's, not guilt, but like, circumspection on her face of like, hmm, yeah, maybe I've like colored Donna a little too harshly against, uh, against Bobby, you know, because she does know that there's, she, I think she has some pity for, for Bobby as well as contempt and frustration. Later on, Bobby tells, uh, tells Laura to, to plan for their evening together when they, when he, when she sees him in school, um, with the, the, um, with the cocaine when he gives her the little bit of cocaine they're planning the drug deal that night so Jacques gave me a big tip so they go out for the evening uh into the woods with the flashlight laughing around I've talked about this scene a fair amount already so I don't need to get too much into it again uh but it's a great moment between these characters where we actually do see something of their connection like she, he's somebody that she can kind of cut loose with in a way, she kind of can't with with any of the other characters. I, I think maybe with Donna in a little bit of a way, but like a little more freely with Bobby. Like they are having genuine fun in the sequence, even though she's annoying the hell out of him. And uh, apparently, Charlie did a really good job with that with Dana Ashbrook in the scene. He's talked about how like Lynch just kept encouraging her to kind of egg me on and <laughs> wind me up, and it, it created a great dynamic for that moment. Uh, and it's also funny to me that there's music playing in the distance in this scene. Uh, like distance, it has a distanced effect on it, like we're hearing it out of a car radio, but I'm pretty sure it's what they call like non-diegetic music, like it's not supposed to be in the movie, it's on the soundtrack. So it's funny that Lynch muffles it in a way like it's coming from somewhere else. I would assume that they didn't just leave the car radio playing to attract attention as they're out there doing a drug deal, but I don't know, with these two in this condition, you never know, so maybe so. And this is... uh to an extent, an important moment in their relationship, just because it shows how far gone Laura is from Bobby's concern. Like Bobby just killed someone and this is totally dominating him. And she's like no help whatsoever. It, it, she's just kind of laughing at him like, oh, this is hysterical. And, 
he's he's much more haunted by it. And so the next time and the last time we see them together, uh, she's down in his basement and he wants her to stay with him and she doesn't want to. She says she has to go home to her house and he realizes she just wants the drugs. She doesn't want him. And he, there's an understanding and a sadness there. And he under, he he gives her what she wants and kind of lets her go. And that's it. You know, this, this is the relationship to Bobby. I think it's almost like a, I don't want to say underrated. It's just like sort of a nice, subtle undercurrent to the film. Like these relationships he has with the different people each bring out a different side of her and show us something about that character as well. And it just really humanizes Bobby in a way, not that he wasn't, you know, already humanized quite a bit on the show, but he has this very bratty, immature side. And this film kind of overall shows us um, the pain underneath that of, of he's just not enough for this person that he, I think, is in love with. Um, though she's just clearly not really in love with him anymore, even though on the surface, they're the public couple. They're the ones who are together. You know, there's there's uh, quite a rich dynamic there, which I think the show does, does um, deliver on. And now, finally, we reach the biggest storyline involving Laura in the film, which is introduced in the pilot when we first see Sarah calling up to Laura in their house, uh, right after we've already found out she's dead. And this is the Palmer family storyline, the story of Laura and her relationship to her parents, particularly in this film, her father, but I think her mother has an interesting role to play as well. Uh, And... We'll touch on that briefly, I think, at the outset, because in all of the scenes we're going to talk about, it's really more about Leland and Laura. But Sarah's present in many of these scenes, and it's clear, I think, from the film that she knows something is going on, and whether she knows or has a suspicion of exactly what's going on, or whether it's just a vague understanding. I mean, she is also, let's not forget, like a psychic character, just in addition to what she can observe. Uh, There's a sense that she knows something's wrong. She kind of knows, even if she couldn't describe it exactly, she knows generally what it is. And she's not able or willing or some combination of both to do anything about it. And this is a really common theme with with, uh, families where incest happens between a father and a daughter. The mother is often uh, quite resented by the child for not for for taking this kind of passive enabling role in the abuse and uh, there's a story of like I think it was um, a former Miss America or someone who was abused by her father and she said when he was in there one night she heard the mother's footsteps outside in the hallway and she thought oh my god she's coming she's finally going to come and and stop this and she heard the footsteps stop outside the door and turn around it's just such a haunting image. And I mean, that's, that's, I think, really what you get from Sarah in this movie. And there's much more that can be said about Sarah and all of that that I think we'll have to save for another occasion. But let's move on to where the storyline comes through in this film. It begins in the moment that Leland exits the house while Laura is hiding in the bushes. So she's already seen Bob up in her room. She knows there's an intruder in there. And here she sees the intruder was her father. The door is opening as uh, she says it's not him. You see the door open. She goes, it's not him. It's not him. It's not him. And you see that that front door opening. And 
there's just such a succession of doors in this sequence. She's also, as she's saying, you know, she continues to say it's not him. We pan over, we see that picture of the open door. Um, so it's like the door opening to this knowledge. And then he's also, you know, he opens the door to the house, walks out, opens the door to get in the car. She's just opened the door to find Bob upstairs. Like that door is what guides us into the view of Bob. And the very next cut after the scene is to Donna opening the door to reveal Laura standing on the doorstep. There's so much with opening doors in Lynch's work, going back to a racer head, opening and closing doors back to a racer head through all of his films. That's just a really rich and powerful image. And uh, it's present maybe throughout this film more than any other of his and this sequence right here is just loaded with it, this idea of the doors opening to reveal something. And literally using that opening door picture as the ultimate symbol of that. The next time we see Leland is when he's telling Lara that she needs to wash her hands, welcomes her to the dinner table, smiling in this kind of menacing way, and then looks down, sees the half-heart necklace, and... His, hand, his eyes kind of flit away and you can see them looking down at her hands. And it's like in that moment, he's literally like transferring his jealousy incurred by the necklace onto her hands. And then it becomes an obsession with your hands are dirty. You need to clean your hands, grabbing the hands. And something about this scene that really struck me on this viewing, I even like paused it and kind of looked at the frame and studied it was the grid-like composition of that first shot where the camera is slowly um, tracking behind, like from the living room, looking into the dining room through that entryway. And there's just all these vertical and horizontal lines. There's like a sense of domestic horror of like a cage to it. So you have the shadow of the blinds on the wall, all across the wall, going up the stairs, creating these horizontal lines. You have the radiator grid going the other way, verticals. You have blinds in the back, the legs of the table with ridges on them, so like lines within that line. Verticals of the opening trim, the trim of the of the opening to the um, dining room going up, and the top of it's cut off, so you just see the verticals. And then in the background, you see the horizontals of the dining room wall crossing across that. There's the stairs uh, as horizontals. Leland, his hands are clasped up almost in like a prayer motion as a vertical line. The chandelier hanging down over his head with these dangling lines. Um, even like his hairline and his eyebrows have a kind of a sharpness to them. There's like a, 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 a crisscross sense, but it's detached. The verticals and horizontals usually aren't actually crossing each other or even um, uh, like touching most of the time they're offset. So it's like, there'll be a horizontal here. There'll be one vertical maybe between them, but there's not like a hatch kind of crisscross tic-tac-toe shape, except right by the door where you can see like the light just coming in through the grid on the very top. There's like a silhouette or a shadow there, but you have the lines of the painting, you have the painting or sorry, the lines of the piano behind uh, Leland, the vertical line going across the paint painting behind him candles. Um, there's like, salt and pepper shakers on the table. Just the sense of like, like a detached grid. That's really the only way I can describe it. The only different textures in here, you have a, a duck, a wooden duck on the uh, piano, but even that has kind of a square shape to it. 
Uh, the only really different texture is the roughly curtain frills, but even they are squared off on their edges, like sharply, um, you know, delineated on the outside. And the, the this like horizontal um, window sash kind of cutting into them on the inside. So this is just this image just struck me of this of these lines coming in from every direction. So it's weird. It's like a cage, but it's not a tight cage. It's like, a, it's like, it's almost like a obstacle course, like going around these lines, trying to dodge around each one kind of poking out there. It's, it's, um, it's a cage that's just open enough to put you on edge and make you feel like maybe you can get out of it, but you can't. And at a glance, this seems like it should be a tidy, welcoming scene of a domestic home. You know, he's sitting at the dinner table. The colors are pleasant. The de decor is tasteful, uh, maybe a little kitschy, but, you know, it's it's it seems like it should be welcoming, and it's not. And there, the fact that the camera does this lateral motion across the frame, it emphasizes those lines, but also that limited mobility within it. So the fact that you're not just like totally, it's not like this total noir lines closing you in it's like there's opening there but very limited and when we get the reverse shot of this opening shot we have Leland in the corner of the frame the right hand corner uh, where he's backed by like darker wood textures of the cabinet and the piano behind him pulling Lara towards him away from the creamier wall color behind her. So just a lot of great compositional work going on in these sequences, in this sequence, in these shots, I should say. And I noticed too, even when he comes up and he's grabbing her hands, he has lines on his shirt, like the shirt he's wearing is, is a lined shirt. And again, with the this idea, he's taking her fingers and spreading them apart. It's like a violation of the grid. This is the double side of the abuse, which is, that there's a harsh rigidity that's enforced, but then also a violent bending of those very boundaries. And so when you have this paternal abuse, it's like this idea of he's simultaneously the patriarch and the violator of the patriarchal norms. And that's why he has to be segmented into this idea of like Leland and Bob. But the film shows us a much more complicated, intertwined portrait of that. And the most haunting part of all of this is when Sarah comes in she does see Laura. They have eye contact at a certain point of like, please do something. And she actually does try in this moment. She says, oh, Leland, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. I don't like that when you do that. She even shrieks and kind of gets him to stop. But one of the things she says at one point is she doesn't like that. And he turns to her and he snarls, how do you know what she likes? And that's, I mean, that moment there says it all, I think of who he thinks he is and what he thinks what he thinks his relationship to her is that the violation has established a kind of intimacy between them with a very clear power dynamic so Laura is sent off she says she's not going we're not going to eat until she washes her hands so she cries and she leaves the dinner table and she's just sobbing in the bathroom and it's one of the most haunting scenes of abuse I've ever seen like there's no hitting there isn't even like swearing really there's like not um anything explicitly sexual but it's as as lynch can do just evoking something i don't even want to say indirectly because it feels so direct and impactful but it's like it's it it just conveys everything in this gesture in this conceit this idea of telling 
the him telling her she has to wash her hands captures everything about that dynamic between them. And this to me was the scene that really changed all of Twin Peaks and the way I viewed it as I was watching this film for the first time. Later on, Leland is up in the bedroom with Sarah. He's sitting on the bed and crying, a little bit reminiscent of the scene in the pilot where he's sitting on Laura's bed um, as, as Hawk is looking through the room. Um, I noticed there was like a lamp on Sarah's desk that has like an owl in a tree, and it occurred to me this might be the only owl in the film, another motif that Firewalk With Me is kind of moving away from the, this sort of spooky lighter image in a way where it's like haunting but in a way that's almost weirdly kind of comforting and you don't get much of that in the film at all unless you think of uh, as as one of the usenet commentators wrote those white masks with the long noses as like an owl beak then i suppose you do but otherwise this is kind of it for the film the electricity really places the out replaces the owls as some kind of conduit of spirits in this world and so Leland is crying, and Sarah turns to him, says, what's wrong? And we see his whole face transform in this moment where he's glowering, and it loosens, and his whole face sags, and that's when he begins to cry. Many have seen this as Bob vacating Leland. And there's that. But again, as I always will with this film, I think the two, the, the thread between them is really crucial. This idea, like, the person who is glowering is the same person who feels guilt and shame and a kind of love toward their daughter. And I think that's much more powerful than the idea that these have to be separate people. Um, I think it's a much richer and truer uh, conceit to think of it as being a kind of a spectrum that he oscillates on and that even in a way can be both at the same time. So think of how in the following scene, he, he goes to uh, visit Laura in her bedroom and she kind of startles as he opens the door but he takes her hand and he clasps it tenderly and he tells her he loves her. He kisses the hand. He even says, good night, princess. And the fan is off behind him. So it's like this is not a Bob moment, we're being told in a way. And there's this long train whistle that plays throughout the, the scene. I don't. It's almost like music. It's like a constant tone. It ebbs and flows through the whole sequence, both bedrooms, and very haunting, beautiful noise of something departing in a way. And people have also interpreted this as being like Bob leaves. But I would say this idea that she's the princess and he's closing her up in her tower, locking the door behind her, it's it's really like a flip side in a way of this of this this cruelty that he exhibits as Bob, this controlling there's just a controlling aspect to all of it towards her, towards his relationship to her, where she's the princess or she's dirty, and there's no, like, in-between. He, he, I think the idea that there is a totally dual split presence in Leland is kind of belied by the fact that he's imposing this duality on everything around him. Or not duality, because I, I try to use that word to talk about when there are two aspects of the same thing. But really, he imposes this kind of dualism, this idea of like either or, either she's a princess or a monster, either I'm a loving dad or or there's this tormentor. Um, it, he, he, he needs these dichotomies to navigate his life. And Laura's tragedy, but also in some ways her way out, is that she can't see things quite that simply, even though she's often tempted to. 
So the next time we see Leland is coming into the Hayward house to pick uh, Laura up in the morning. And that's when he's disturbed by the memory of uh, Renette and Laura on the bed, mirroring Laura and Donna on the couch. Notable too, this couch where Donna and Laura are sitting is the couch that Bob crawls across in the series to get at Maddie. So it's like a psychic jolt is planted in this moment that maybe is what struck out at Maddie in that in the TV episode. Leland and Laura go off to meet Sarah somewhere, and uh, the one-armed man confronts them in traffic, just pulls up behind them in his RV as they're stuck at an intersection where an old man is slowly crossing the street. Again, like this, this touch of Lynchian humor in this. He loves like old people moving slowly, but there's just, it's, there's so many other elements overwhelming the scene that we probably don't even quite notice. Um, this and the Modes Motors guy feel like things that Lynch might have shot and indulged a little more while shooting. And then when cutting it been like, uh, let's shift the focus elsewhere so that you almost have to notice there. The, the elements are there. The one armed man stops. He's screaming at them. Uh, we'll talk about that in the mythology because it's loaded with, uh, that type of lore. But, as they pull away, as he pulls off and they pull around and drive into the mechanic's yard, they're talking in the car. Laura, Leland's trying to comfort her. What was that? What was that? And it's, I'm always struck by how Laura actually seems more alarmed by her father than by uh, this Philip Gerard, the stranger who is screaming and yelling and waving the ring. She's like, are you all right? Why are you hitting the accelerator like that? Why are you yelling? Like there's something wrong with you. That's her constant emphasis in this, which is, interesting and that's when she asks him were you home on friday like did i see you there i thought i saw you there and he denies it at first like oh that's right i i had a, a severe headache and i went home to get some aspirin i didn't see you there and it's like he calls her bluff of like oh you really want me to say i was there okay i was there were you there can you admit that you were there and it's this i see this moment as a moment of sort of game playing like look you know the rules you know, and, and when I say this stuff about Leland, I don't think his mind works in the way of like, he's hyper-conscious, like, okay, now I'm going to turn up the knob to like, uh, you know, imply something to Laura, or uh, now I'm going to do this, now I'm going to do that. I think he's driven along by these urges and impulses and this weird mental construct he's created within himself of compartmentalization that he just bounces around within. Um, I don't know that it's a question of him not remembering. I don't quite buy that in the context of this movie, but he can just be extraordinarily selective in what he accesses and blocks in a given moment. So we have them talking there and eventually him admitting and her not willing to say, okay, she was there. Oh, I, was, I was just, I was, or she says, you know, I, I just come home from school or I was something or other and, just saw you in the yard. Oh, okay. All right. Everything's fine again. And of course it's not. I wondered when I was watching this scene again, um, just because of the dynamic and like where it's all going, like what could, where could this be headed? What's going to happen between these characters? I wonder if people who were not familiar with Twin Peaks and saw this movie, which did happen, it wasn't common, but people went to see Firewalk with me without knowing Twin Peaks um, they'd probably heard of it. They probably had heard of like who killed Laura Palmer. But I wonder if maybe even in years after, as people rented it on video, if people saw this film not knowing Laura was going to die and where they might think it was going 
where it was headed, how they would react to the realization in the end that she actually is being killed and that that's how the film ends. It's very powerful to think of how somebody would experience it in that light. And I don't imagine, because it's such a small group of people that probably ever saw it that way, that anybody who did would be um, necessarily listening to this podcast. But if you have and if you did, please let me know. Like, what was your... I've heard of people's reactions like after they saw Firewalk with me before seeing the series, but not like in the midst of seeing it. Like, what did you think you were watching in a way? What was the story? Was it going to end with her telling him off and escaping or was something else going to happen? Just it's very intriguing to me that that prospect of seeing it that way, just like it's intriguing to see the pilot and think, what if they never told uh, who killed her? Like, what if it just ended as this open-ended mystery, always open to interpretation and multiple possibilities and the not knowingness? And the f- kind of flip side of that is, what if the film existed without her death? What if there was something else it was headed towards? Later that night, we see Laura flashing back to the scene of the one-armed man tormenting her and her father. Uh, waving the ring in the face. That's when she's making the associations between the rings. The next time we see Leland, he's standing on the steps watching Laura and James and just looking, again, like that kind of domineering patriarch archetype. It's interesting to contrast this, too, with what we see on the show where Leland is often like goofy and lovable and we we just get that kind of side of him as uh, Leland and when he's, you know, Bob, obviously, he's much darker. But like there's... There's not this sense of like the serious, somber, domineering father figure that we get in this film. It, it, it offers a very different portrait. I remember being kind of shocked by that aspect of it, even aside from everything else when watching. And then that night, Leland gives Sarah a drink. It's milk, obviously spiked so that it'll knock her out and he can go assault Laura. And uh, she takes it and there's like a hesitation moment there and he kind of nudges it like, finish it up and she does and it's that right there is a kind of a brutal moment in the film Leland goes out to the hallway he turns the fan on and right away here we kind of see this is one of those brilliant moments that we have in Lynch films you have it in Mulholland Drive you have it in um certainly I mean Mulholland Drive is the most obvious example but arguably maybe Lost Highway as well and Inland Empire perhaps but Mulholland Drive being the most obvious example where you get some sort of charged symbol. It has a psychic resonance that you wouldn't necessarily be able to ascribe to anything down to earth. And then you get something that actually does give it a very human psychological underpinning. And I think you get aspects of this in Twin Peaks with the dream clues Mark Frost kind of tries to do that, but his is a little more literal. I don't think quite as poetic as what Lynch does when he does that. And this is a great example of that, where it's like this fan, this creepy fan that we keep seeing. What could it mean? What could it be? And there is a mythological aspect to it where it's like, okay, the electricity is a conduit, Bob travels, but there's also just the very straightforward, oh, like Leland turns the fan on to block the noise of him when he goes into Laura's room at night. And that's what this fan signifies. And that's why we get all these haunting shots of it throughout the series. That's what it actually means. We have a scene after this of Sarah seeing the white horse as she does before Maddie is murdered. And she's, for some reason, got a book folded out on her chest, says how to speak German. People have 
wondered if this has something to do with doppelgangers or something, or if it's related to the Norwegian thing where it's like, um, she, you know, the, the Norwegians are coming to town soon for a business meeting or something. I don't know. It's an odd little detail, uh, kind of haunting in an odd way. I, I don't know why. Maybe it's something to do with the Grimm, the brothers Grimm, but, or just, you know, German recent, relatively recent, uh, 20th century German history. I don't know, but th- it's an interesting motif to, to have in that moment. Then comes the scene that is really the, the crux of the movie. Laura is lying in bed. She sees the flickering outside the window. She starts to pull down her sheets and she's like preparing herself for Bob in some way um, and, and performs sort of an act of of not seduction, but like being seduced. That's sort of the depiction. Some people have criticized this as like, why is she kind of putting on this display in the moment of abuse? Uh, I think... Uh, you know the way uh, the, the way that i see it is uh, more that the abuse has already begun and this is the response that's been sort of conditioned uh, into her and i think it's important to note and i've written about this elsewhere when we see bob coming in through the window the act of abuse is already going on i think i think leland is already you know, it's hard to talk about these things in a literal sense because they're put on screen in this kind of more poeticized way where things are a little more abstract and symbolic almost. I don't know if symbolic is even the right word. Um, it's not like one thing stands in for the other necessarily. We see something that represents a feeling of how things are. That said, I I think Leland, Leland doesn't come... Leland doesn't walk outside and climb up the side of the house and climb in the window. That's ridiculous. He comes in through the door. I think Bob is joining something that's already going on. And that's important to understand, I think, the relationship between Leland and Bob as well. My reading of it is that this the the, the acts are performed by Leland. Leland is the operating consciousness essentially behind them. Bob feeds off of it, and he feeds into it, encourages it. Uh, but he is a parasite. He is he's along for the ride, essentially. And a parasite can have, um, you know, a parasite can can impact the host as well. Uh, I've talked about that in the past with uh, different, like literal, natural examples of how that works. But there is also a sense in which the parasite is feeding off of what's already there. And I think that's that's Bob's role in this story, essentially. And when you think about the relationship that he has with Laura, it's playing upon the things that are within within her as well, that she can choose to follow or choose not to follow, and shape he can shape and kind of direct the behavior in a certain way or the attitudes. But uh, you look at this scene, you look at how this scene unfolds, and I think that what's happening is is the Bob is. Bob is uh, coming into something that's already, already going on, and uh, and that's so. So what happens is the scene unfolds as she keeps saying, "Who are you? Who are you?" Asking, and again, I think this is something. It's like you can't. There's a truth, a fundamental truth to the scene, but in terms of the actions on screen, I think it's important to see them as representing something rather than directly depicting it, if that makes sense. So I don't necessarily know that 
she's in there asking her father, who are you? Who are you? It's a question in her mind. And when the reveal comes and she sees him, she screams. And that's something too, that I, I don't think she's screaming so that the whole neighborhood can hear, um, that, you know, something, something horrible is going on in this house and they're going to come over and, and discover what's happening. I think that's a, an internal scream, but that's my interpretation of this whole scene. I think a lot of what we see isn't happening necessarily in the way we see it. I think one thing is, one fundamental truth is, uh, just because of the impact that it has, you know, with a lot of Lynch, you f- you follow the emotions of it. And the truth in this scene is that it's her father who's raping her. And that's the important thing to understand about this moment in, in Twin Peaks and Firewalk with me in Laura Palmer's story. And that's certainly what she understands and takes away from it. So the next morning, she's at the breakfast table in tears. He's all suited up, ready for work. Chipper, like nothing's wrong. Her mom is in her usually usual withdrawn mode. But Laura is not acting normally. She's she's crying. She's pushes her bowl aside. She leaves the room. Oh, I'll take care of this, honey. I'll take care. He goes up. She's just an emotional teenage daughter and goes upstairs. Oh, what is it? What is it? And she turns to him and she says, stay away from me. And he looks at her stunned and she leaves with this just incredible look on her face, looking at him as she goes down the stairs and exits the house. And then the camera closes in on him and this mask of malevolence comes over his face. And uh, it's similar to the, it's like the reverse movement of what happens when he starts crying on the bed in that earlier sequence. And again, people read this as, Bob is coming, you know, Bob is now taking over. And again, like, I don't, I don't see Bob as like some sort of pure metaphor. I don't think the film exactly works that way, nor do I think it's like a, it's an empty shell that is put over Leland or something like that. There is a force, there is like a Bob force in this universe, but there's also a Leland. And, you know, I think sometimes people take this reading of Bob as, as the, the evil influencer so far that, uh, in a way, in a weird way, in the attempt to save Leland from being an abuser, he's wiped out as a character. I mean, how does this character even exist if everything bad he does is Bob and he's just like happy-go-lucky father who we see for like two seconds in this movie and really never in the series because he's under... I mean, they're, you know, the, the, the reading would be all the grief is Bob and all of this, but then it just doesn't work. And the thing is, you have to understand the creative process of this it never quite worked in the conception. And I think Lynch realizes that in this movie and he gives it the kind of the best, most uh, resonant spin he can give it, uh, he, that he can give to the fact that this Bob, the the idea of Bob was it basically used, I don't even necessarily say initiated, but used on the series as a cover-up, as as something to avoid having to deal with the real horror of 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 having the father be the killer. And again, I always say it's like, you know, does this story necessarily have to be read on some literal or realistic level? Like, does it, you know, can you, can you make a supernatural story in which a, a Paris, a, a creature, a, a inhabiting spirit takes over a host and the host is helpless. And that's terrifying too. Yeah, sure. But you don't do that in a story about a father abusing a daughter. Cause that's already a real thing that happens that it, it carries all sorts of gravity and weight and uh, and 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 is dealt with in a certain way in uh, in narratives where it's often avoided or covered up or deflected onto something else. So it 
I just don't think it works to tap into that well of emotion and resonance and then dodge and weave away from it. And I think the show tries to do that. And I think the film does something much more compelling with it there. So to return to this moment here, I think this, this moment where Laura says, stay away from me. These are essentially the killer words of the story. This is the last, this is it. This is the end. When she says, when she tells him to stay away from her, she's bound to die now because the one thing he needs more than anything else is to have that sense of control. It's like with Teresa saying, who am I? I don't know. That's right. You know, that, that sense of, and with Maddie as well, she's going to go home. That's when he kills her. There's that need to be in charge, that desperation. And that I think is the, uh, that that's the final straw and the final motivation there. The next scene is Laura walking to school and uh, carrying her books, crying, the, the, the camera whizzing around. There's bursts of static. It's just a brilliant sequence to kind of convey her emotional state. The whole day at school passes in a blur. At the end of the day, when she gets up, she's getting out of the chair and they just dissolve to the empty chair. Uh, calling to mind the pilot when we when Donna looks over, sees the chair empty, and she knows right away that Laura's been killed. That night, uh, we have one more scene with Sarah, where she's sitting reading the newspaper, and Laura walks past and says goodnight to her, and that's it. Last time she'll see her. And Sarah recalls this moment in the pilot, which is, I think, one reason that Lynch bothers to show it. He likes illustrating, he likes seeing the things that are suggested in the pilot. For all of Lynch's attraction to keeping things secret and hidden, um, he's not necessarily trying to keep them unreachable in a way. Like when his curiosity is spurred, he wants to keep going with it. So even though he says, "I we never should have revealed Lars Killer or we weren't supposed to yet or something like that, it's his own, he has his own sense of curiosity as well. And I think the fact that he had to answer that question for the TV audience makes fire walk with me possible makes the most transcendent and powerful moments of this film possible as Laura's leaving with james leland's watching from the window and scowling this is like the this whole idea of the following um time we see him too when he shows up at the cabin and he is uh he's his his face appears in the window with this kind of manic smile on it as he's approaching and inside Jacques is abusing Lara and Leland's just standing there watching through the window. It's this archetype of the vengeful patriarch flipped around so that Leland is coming not to punish those who are hurting his daughter, but to join them in punishing her. Uh, it's kind of that ultimate nightmare of, of what that figure really means and signifies. So Leland knocks Jacques out after Jacques walks out all drunk, putting his pants back on, knocks him out in the dirt falls down. Later, Jacques will remember this as having been Leo hitting him, but I kind of like the way. That's one of those things that doesn't feel like a contradiction. It feels like a real matter of confusion that would play out that way in, in reality. Oh, on the show, he, he, he thinks that it was Leo who hit him. He doesn't know there was a third man. Only the log lady with her kind of intuition does. Leland, at this point, kidnaps Laura and Renette, this horrible moment where he steps into the cabin, Laura looks up slowly, sees his pant leg and looks up in horror, realizing it's him and starts screaming and he screams back in her face. Uh, 
that he grabs them. He, he, he's got them tied up and he's pushing them through the woods. This is a sort of a thing where it's like Lynch had to run with this idea because this was, you know, there was this idea that the killer was moving them through the woods from the cabin to the train car. And it's kind of a ridiculous conceit in a way. Like why would he not just kill them there? Why wouldn't he do whatever he's going to do there? Why does it have to be at the train car? And it has to be because that's how they set up the mystery to begin with. And they didn't set it up knowing, you know, they set up the individual pieces and then tried to piece them together retroactively. So there are some sort of clumsy bits or things in between, but he kind of makes this moment work just by taking it to the extreme. I mean, Leland's face as he's pushing them is, it is kind of ridiculous and terrifying at the same time. It's like he just you know, you can feel Lynch behind the camera, like, just go, keep going, Ray, go, go further with it, go further. And like taking it all the way there as he's like racing them out there. So then they're taken to the train car and, uh, Leland has a uh, on the ground and she's crying and she looks up at him and she says, are you going to kill me? And it's this powerful moment because essentially Laura is asking the question that drove the entire show and turning once again, as this film does over and over something that was kind of fun and treated like a game of like who killed Laura Palmer. I think there was even like a board game of it at one point and just ripping that mask off uh, and looking at it face to face as what it is, is just this horrible event of trauma and pain. And the answer to this mystery is, is horrible and uh, Leland says to her, she shows her the diary page and says, I always thought you knew it was me. We see Bob on the other side of her saying, I never knew you knew it was me. And people have interpreted this different ways. To me, it seems fairly clear again that there is this, there is a Leland, there is an independent Leland that is responsible for these things. There is a Bob that also has a hand in this. And she no, she, she, uh, as far as Leland is concerned, I don't think he knows who Bob is or what Bob is. I don't think he has the consciousness of Bob that Laura does. I think he, as he sees it, this was, uh, this abuse was like a, some sort of illicit romance that he had that she was in on and that, uh, she always knew it was him. He didn't know that she had blocked it out or something like that. And that's, that's what he's kind of breaking his heart in this moment, you know, and then, you know, not, not to make him sound too sympathetic because what he does with that heartbreak and what, and, and what he was making excuses for in the beginning, it's all sort of inevitable. He says to her at one point, don't make me do this. Like it's her fault that he has to kill her. And there's multiple levels to that. There's also the fact she's putting on the ring and something is compelling him uh, beyond just his own personal individual needs. There is a sort of a, uh, a cosmic force at play in all of this as well. And then when Bob is there saying, you know, again, on the other side, so it's like there's a Leland and there's a Bob and they both have a truth to them uh, that Laura is able to see not just that it was Leland, but also beyond Leland to the force uh, sort of uh, operating above and beyond the, the more cosmic aspect of it, understanding Bob, understanding the, the larger uh, presence that wants to be inside her as well. And that's a, a funny moment, uh, odd moment, I should say, that Bob says, I never knew you knew it was me. Bob has talked to her directly. Bob has 
taunted her, tormented her. Certainly in The Secret Diaries, Jennifer Lynch writes it, Bob speaks to her independently of Bob, like he speaks to her through the pages of her diary. And uh, as far as Bob is concerned, as far as a consciousness can be impugned onto this kind of force, there was a thought that he was always using, uh, he was always operating through Leland and thinking she only saw the face of it and not the not the larger web that Leland was caught in, if that makes sense. It's a complicated dynamic to work out in that way, but it makes a certain level of intuitive sense to me, again, for something that was not designed to be this clever conceit. And initially, I think it was kind of designed as a cover story and a sort of half-understood impulse of like, you see this dark image and it points to an even darker truth. And then the image, the 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 cover story kind of takes on a life of its own, especially as they needed to reveal the killer and how do you do that and so forth. So Leland ends up killing Laura, of course. Uh, it's after he throws Laura, Renette out. He sees her put the ring on. That seems to be the spur. And you have to remember, in addition to whatever mythological connotation that carries, the ring is also evidence that uh, she knows he killed Teresa. This was Teresa's ring. So there's a significance there as well. We'll get into that much more in the discussing the the, the murder mystery as like a, a question in of itself. So after Leland has killed her, wraps her in plastic, takes her out, puts her into the river, and then he enters Glastonbury Grove, and there's a moment where his face turns the same color that hers did. And from this moment on, I do think, even though this is so much Leland's story, with Leland as an active presence, not just a kind of a puppet for Bob, in this sequence, he does kind of become more removed and Bob steps into the foreground as Leland floats up to this to uh, above the floor of the red room and Bob confronts Mike and the man from another place at this point the the kind of gods if you will of twin peaks these these greater beings these greater forces are uh exchanging between them so Leland is just there to kind of be a a uh, costume that has slipped off in that moment in that sense even if he had his own reasons for doing what he did. And of course, the pain and sorrow that Bob takes to feed to the arm is not, uh, I, it doesn't seem to be Lars, although, you know, there's blood on his shirt that seems it's supposed to come from a wound, his own wound. So this is Leland's pain and sorrow that's being fed to the arm, interestingly enough, uh, not Lars. And finally, we move all the way back to the beginning of the pilot, the very first story involving Laura that's introduced, and that is the murder itself. And we've already covered most of this, everything that fed into it, led up to it, the different factors, Leland's motivations and feelings and actions around it through the Palmer story and other Laura storylines as well, and the Teresa Banks case and all of that. But there are still some elements that pertain mostly just to the murder itself that we can touch on here. Uh, Cooper, of course, mentions early on that he thinks the killer will strike again before we've even seen Laura in the story. Her her fate is kind of set. Cooper later tells Albert about the next victim. She's blonde. She's in high school. She's on drugs. She's sexually active. She's crying out for help. And Albert, of course, says, great, that, that really narrows it down. You're talking about half the high school girls in America. A classic Albert line. But uh, also pointing toward this notion that Laura's story is indicative, as unique as she is, also indicative of a much wider, darker trend. 
And uh, interesting, you know, for all the times I've talked about the American flag and all of that uh, appearing throughout the film, these weird, this obsession it has with presidents, with President's Day, with Eisenhower, with uh, the founding fathers on the wall, uh, that that kind of patriarchal symbolism in conjunction with this dark story of a father who's murdering his daughter. Uh, this may be the only time in the movie that America actually comes up in a line of dialogue, if I think about it, oddly enough. I don't know, that's interesting. Canada comes up as well in another context. But uh, when we cut into Cooper in this scene, he's talking, it's like right, in, it's from the red curtain, it's right in the middle. He's talking like in the middle of the dissolve. So it's this weird scene. I've already talked about how it's kind of awkward in the context of the structure of the movie. And in this moment, um, it feels like a slice of a larger scene that they just put in there for whatever reason. It's just as we're totally getting wrapped up in Laura's world, we're pulled up. It works as a conscious point of contrast, but not so much aesthetically in that very moment. I mean, Cooper even tells us what we already know from the film itself, which I guess does demonstrate his uh, expositional uselessness, if if nothing else. But it's also this moment of a final reminder of what the murder was on this show, this sort of mystery. We looked at it from a distance, from a detective's point of view, and and it's something totally different in this film. So when we finally get to that death scene, the murder itself, after all of the lead up, both in that sequence itself and throughout the whole film, is very quick. It's quick stabs, sudden motions, flashing light, Laura screaming, the blood coming out of her mouth. And finally, we see her choking and, and just and dying. And that's the last moment we see Leland and Bob spread out the plastic over her. And it keeps switching, sliding back and forth between Leland and Bob in that moment as they wrap her up. And then Leland places her in the water and we cut back to her body in the middle of the red room stuff, the, the plastic floating near the log. Uh, it's just this last kind of perfunctory, you know, the film does have its moments where it's just sort of fulfilling something that we expected from the show. I think the critics were mostly pretty far off when they said, oh, this is just showing us, it's just Lynch like illustrating what he already said on the show. What, what's the point? It doesn't, most of it is not that at all. But there are some moments where it is kind of filling in those last little gaps that you probably didn't even need to see, but there is a sense of completion in it coming full circle, you know? So bringing us to that point where now there's the body as we found it in the pilot and even repeating that first shot of uh, Doc Hayward opening up the plastic and discovering Laura's face there. So that's it for the Laura storylines, for the non-Laura storylines, for everything uh, to do with that those narrative elements as described in the various scenes. Thank you for listening. Uh, we're going to stop there for the moment, but we're going to pick up tomorrow with probably in some ways the most important of these podcasts. It's called The Mysteries. It uh, asks the questions that I would ask um, on the series when they seem sometimes more like trivial, fun parlor games, even the mystery questions, who is this person, who killed this person, and so forth. And uh, now I think with this film, they become more serious and deeper, and there's so much to dig into. So we start with the question of who killed Teresa Banks. Then we ask not who killed Laura Palmer. We've obviously known that for a while. We ask why was Laura Palmer killed, and that's the longest section. I have a lot to say about that subject both in terms of like the motivation on screen and also I think uh, what the more spiritual significance of that final scene is or that climactic scene I should say because there's a final scene after that in the film and then we'll ask our questions who is Laura Palmer the most important one and then start to move outward because we're now going to be shifting at that point you know I don't want 
distract from what the focus will be tomorrow, which is Lauren firewalking me, but we will start to put an eye toward uh, season three to follow after that, because there will be the coverage of that too. So we'll begin to move away from that center at the end of that podcast but that's all tomorrow and uh, you can rate review and subscribe to this podcast on apple podcasts you can become a patron on patreon.com slash lost in the movies one last note to make with the storylines i always keep track of going episode by episode through the series if a story hasn't appeared for four or more episodes then i make note of it because at that point it's kind of you can kind of retire it for the time being unless they decide to bring it back somehow as they do with many storylines in Firewalk Me, stories that hadn't been seen since early in the second or even first season. Um, the one story that, that has reached that benchmark where it hasn't been seen for four more episodes is the Gordon and Shelley romance. From epi- Last time we saw it was episode 26. And what a contrast to think of that, that sort of delightful director's cameo where he's kissing Shelley and it's just all cheerful and that, that sort of sunny side of Twin Peaks so far from where we are at this point. I couldn't watch that. Is she okay? Yeah, she's okay. Listen, get a hold of your father. Tell him to send the police over to Dorothy's apartment right away. Tell him to hurry. I'm leaving right now. Jeffrey, no. I have to. I love you. Oh, God, be careful. I will, believe me.